0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Listen, darling, at 15 you were this way and at 29 you're still this way and at 39, I'm sorry to tell you, it's time to move on.
2: For this episode, we're going to do things a bit differently. We're handing over the main chunk of the show to a fellow podcaster and someone who is basically the Oprah of couples counselling, Esther Perel. Esther's a psychotherapist and she's going to help us with something that no one likes to do, have a tough conversation. And I guarantee that at the end of this, you will emerge a changed person from who you are right now. So strap
1: yourself in. What is clear is that today there are a lot more conversations that we need to have than ever before. So many things that used to be dictated by rules and regulations are at this moment a matter of negotiation. And So we have to discuss things that we've never had to talk about before. When you say that, do you mean like sex things? No. Do you want children? Right. Start with that one. When, the, when was that ever a conversation? You probably, if you were sexual at some point, would be pregnant, if you were in a straight couple. So, you know, do you want children? When do you want children? Do you, How many children do you want? You know, that's one conversation people have never had. Whose career matters most? That was always very clear. Who is going to wake up to feed the baby? That was always very clear. Who's going to pay for the restaurant? That was always very clear. All these things that used to be quite codified, and normative that are now all a matter of conversation. Look, you wouldn't
2: be here if you didn't know and understand deep down in your DNA that ladies need to talk. Friends are the new family, ghosting is a thing, the rules of how couples work are being rewritten, and for a lot of us, we're making it all up as we go, by talking. But how do we have those conversations without seeming like an asshole? or exploding an entire friendship, or breaking someone's heart. I'm Yumi Steins. Ladies, we need to talk about tough conversations. oh, You're over here. Okay. Esther Perel is a Belgian-born child of Holocaust survivors and a world-famous authority on relationships. In her books and podcasts, she's able to cut through human nonsense. Meeting her in person made me super self-conscious about what she might see when she looked into my eyes. What if she could see my rotten core? <laughs> We wanted to speak to Esther because of her talents in managing difficult and often awkward conversations between regular people like you and me who just don't know how to say the thing that is burning up inside of us.
1: Look, I will give you always ideas about how you can say certain things, but I always will know that in the end, the conversation is not just shaped by the person who speaks. The conversation is shaped by the person who listens or doesn't listen. And you don't control that. You have a lot that you can control because the way you say things may trigger defensiveness or receptivity. But sometimes there is a defensiveness no matter how you say it. I wanted to use this opportunity
2: with Esther Perel to work through a range of scenarios that had been presented to us by our listeners. And full disclosure, this episode is a bit like a really excellent counselling session. Obviously, some tough conversations are tougher than others. So the idea was to start with something small. Like, for instance, how would you tell someone the way you eat is really
1: annoying? So, imagine I just met you and uh, you say, you know, it's interesting. I don't know why, but there's something about people who eat with a lot of noise that just does something to me. And I'm sure that nobody else has ever had maybe a problem with that or maybe others have. But it happens that it just really does something to me. And you own it. You kind of make it become about you now we are a year later and now I'm with you. And now I'm trying to say, you know, you have a way of clicking. You have a way of not wiping yourself. You have a way of putting an amount of food in your mouth at the same time. That's just like gorging yourself. You have a way of eating so fast. Like people are just starting and your plate is empty. You have a lot of things that you want to say right about this. (laughs) The eating thing is such a phenomenal example. You know, the issue is, am I talking to someone who's receptive to how they come across to others? Or am I talking to someone who basically wants me to, uh, under the guise of you should love me the way I am, accept me as I am, no conditions, et cetera, et cetera, is basically giving me a kind of a selfish look on life. And it's like, you know, I, you make the effort, why shall I kind of thing. At some point, you have a good idea of the other person. Are they open to receive feedback? And this may be feedback about how they eat, feedback about how they dress, how they groom, how they make love, how they touch you. It's the same thing. Do they receive it and say, thank you. I actually appreciate that you're telling me. I wish other people had said that to me earlier or are they constantly thinking you're picking on me, you're criticizing me, you're being an instructor. I didn't hire you for this, you know, who recruited you for that job. And, and all you get is, you know, I don't want to change. Or if you make one critique about me, what, what else are you saying about me? Then at some point you kind of, the conversation is not about how you eat. The conversation is, you know, I've noticed that there are very few things I can tell you about how I experience you to which you are open. No matter what I say to you, there is a way in which you respond to me with a real sensitivity, with a kind of reactivity, with a counterattack, with a what about you, with a, you know, you want to talk about me, let's talk about, you know, what you did yesterday. You're constantly piling up the dishes in the sink, you know, one after the other. So we can't talk about anything because we've got seven things we are talking about at the same time, you know, kitchen sinking, we call that, or you fire back or you start with my character or you basically are defensive or stonewalling or counter critiquing and that's the conversation stop talking about the item on the menu it's irrelevant at this point
2: so we're talking about how the person receives the information in my experience a lot of the time it's a, it's from the first person the person trying to deliver the information is stuck i've got a really little example i can use my best friend at university used to sleep in my house all the time, in my bed, which we'd get, go out together and she, she would sleep over and her perfume made me feel gross. She was my best friend. I never knew how to say to her, that perfume makes me feel sick and so it would be on my sheets every second weekend. So it wasn't that she wouldn't listen. It was I didn't know how to do it with kindness, I guess.
1: Well, there's a different things, right? A, you've waited too long and you've already accumulated such resentment that you're afraid that when you're going to open your mouth, it's going to come out as venom. Two, you don't know how to actually deal with your own aggression. Three, you confuse feedback with anger. And you're angry at yourself for not having been able to talk to her earlier. So now at this point, you don't know if the anger that's going to come out is at her or even at you. Instead of just simply saying, you know what, I'm really stuck. I realize that this has been months that I've been dealing with this and I don't know how to say it and I'm going to own this. I don't know how to say simply that I don't like this perfume and that would you let me buy you another one? And maybe you wear that one when you come to me, you know, so that I don't deprive you of anything. But basically what you're doing is you're making a meta statement. You You talk about the process itself, not about the perfume. The issue is not the perfume. You could have had this about whatever. I don't know what's going to come out, so I keep it all inside. And the more I keep it inside, and the more I get upset by what I'm holding in, and the more I think that today I'm going to talk, God knows what's going to come out, so I can't let it come out. And in the end, I'm more upset with me than I'm even upset with the damn perfume. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true.
2: Oh, my God. Okay.
1: I got that one clear.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so the stakes are low for that one. It's, it's a friend and it's perfume. Right. What if it's your partner and it's the way he kisses?
1: It's a very tough one because what often happens, of course, is that people have waited a long time before they want to say it. I think that some things sometimes are better said in writing. You write a note and you just say, this is hard for me and this is probably hard for us because it's something that they have never said. And that's been with me. And whenever you hear something that the other person has been thinking for a long time and never said, it's bound to kind of create a mini shock. I would feel no different if you were doing this to me. And yet, I believe in us and I believe that we can do better. And I believe that we have the capacity to be more honest with each other. But I want to say it in utter respect and love for you because I there's so many things I adore about you and I would want to say a few of them before I even write the rest and so then you talk about the things that you really love and I love the way you touch me and I love the way you hold me and I love the way you open the door for me and I love the way you put your hands in my hair and I I love all of that and yet there's something that I would love to love and I don't and that is the way we kiss there's something in the way that we kiss. It's not about how you kiss. It's uh, because you could kiss some other woman and she would be perfectly fine with that or another man. But you, when you kiss me, there's something that I don't I I would like something stronger, harder, softer, whatever it is. And I don't know how to say it to you because I haven't decided that. I don't know if you would accept this as I'm trying to really say something that I think... You would want to know because why would you not want to know how to please me more? Or if you would be offended by it and hurt by it, because maybe that's how I would feel if you were to tell me that you don't like to kiss. So I'm writing this to you so that you can take this in and you're welcome to answer or not answer. But I, want, I felt that I really needed to say this for us because I think that us is stronger than my fears. I feel like I'm going to cry. How about that? That's a note. Are you writing this down? I already feel like
2: a 30% better person just from hearing that. Finding the nerve to bring something up that you feel super awkward about can be so hard. Like, people spend their whole lives trying to avoid confrontation and would sometimes quite literally prefer to die. (laughs) Or sleep in bed sheets that smell like toilet juice than tell a best friend that her perfume is nasty. Which, by the way, I never got around to doing. So I chickened out, but when we asked you about the tough conversations you've had in your life, well, there were some awesome examples where
0: you stepped the hell up. It was with a very good friend. I found was just constantly bringing up an ex-boyfriend of mine. Every time we caught up, she would somehow weave him into the conversation again. So I really had to sit down with her and say hey, this is actually not appropriate. I'm trying to move on with my life. So, you know, please help me out here.
3: The toughest conversation I ever had was at the age of 46, telling my conservative parents in their early 70s that I was transgender and that I was on my way to transitioning to becoming female. I started to tell them my story and cried profusely through the whole 25 minutes of it.
0: I have had a really up and down relationship with my father pretty much since my parents split when I was five or six years old. It just got to a point where I said to him, I really want to heal our relationship. And and that's what he was pushing for. But I I said, you know, if you're serious, we need to go and get counselling together because there's no trust here. And and if you do want to be in my life, then that's what I need and, and he refused. That was the end of it. I didn't speak to him for quite a while. I got to a stage where I really had to do it because I valued this friendship. I basically put together a piece of paper, everything I wanted to say and literally brought out the piece of paper just so I made sure that I said everything and held her hand as I said it and then worked out really well in the end.
3: The relief that you feel from giving up your biggest secret, that you've been hiding even from yourself for decades, is immense. I'm now proud and out, and life is so much happier, which is a really bizarre concept when your parents are no longer part of that life.
0: This was by far the most difficult conversation that I've had to have. Um, yeah.
2: This is Genevieve. She's in the thick of the toughest conversation of her life with her mum. Genevieve's 33 and we've changed her name for this episode. She's a school nurse and for the last 20 years she's known that her mum's had a major drinking problem.
0: I have a rule that I don't call her after 4 p.m. <laughs> if I'm walking the dog and it's like 5 at night and she tries to call, I just don't answer the phone. I just hate it. And you can tell in her voice. You can just tell there's certain like, yeah, speech patterns and whatnot. I think the first time that I noticed my mum had a drinking problem, I was 11 years old and I was at my great uncle's wake. Everybody was sort of getting progressively drunk, but I didn't really understand. And then my mum picked me up. She was definitely drunk and over the limit, picked myself and my cousins up. And this is actually a really bizarre part, but I remembered that she put, it was the Wenger boys, it was playing on the radio, and she just like turned it up so loud. And my cousins are like, oh my God, your mom's so fun and great. And I was like, no, she's really annoying. I don't know why she's acting like this. It's so strange. From that point onwards, I could always recognise that It had been alcohol that had made her, had affected her like this and changed her personality and made her somebody that she's not normally.
2: The problem for Genevieve right now is that she's about to have her first baby. And in spite of how her mum's drinking affects her, they're close. Jen would love it if her mum could move in for a couple of months to help with the baby. But she's worried about her mum drinking around a vulnerable newborn, which has triggered an agonising conversation. Genevieve finally built up the courage to get the dialogue going while they were on holiday in Tasmania.
0: It was the last day of our trip to visit my sister in Hobart. I had left it to the last minute. So we were driving, we dropped my sister off to work and then had to pull into the petrol station to get petrol to fill up the rental car. At that point, I... Don't know if it was because I had morning sickness because I was probably four months pregnant at that point in time, or that I was super nervous. And I feel like it was probably more the fact that I was so nervous about broaching this with mum. I, like, after mum had filled up the car, I had to jump out of the driver's seat and run up behind the car wash and vomit everywhere. And then, so, hop back in the car. And so, we're like sort of winding around the roads, really dark in the early hours of the morning. It was sort of like, yeah, six o'clock in the morning and it was raining and my palms were sweaty, mouth was super dry and I was like licking my lips. At that point I realised mum knew that I was going to ask her something, because we have been there before. I knew because of the GPS when we were getting closer to the highway, I just put that marker on that I was like, I want to bring this up with her now before I hit the highway to the airport. And then finally I did, and I felt like I was going to be sick again. And yeah, I was like, Mom, I need to talk to you. So you know how you're going to come and stay with us and help us out with the baby for the first six weeks or eight weeks or however long? And then she just sort of already was being really silent. And so I was like, cool. Um, so I was really proud of you um, starting on a positive that you haven't drunk that much this week because she didn't. I felt like she might have, when we were away, she might have been hiding it in the room a little bit or doing it behind closed doors, so so to speak. But, yeah, I wanted to start off on a positive. So I said I was really proud of you about that. And she's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then finally I said, but, I, you know, we – don't want to have any drinking in the house when the baby comes, will you be okay with that? Like, I know it's going to be tough for you. And she just like really closed, was like, yes, yep. And then didn't talk to me for the rest of the way to the airport. So it was a super tense and quiet car ride. And then, yeah, she sort of warmed up a little bit later on, but it's been a bit tethered ever since.
2: So are you grateful that you had that conversation?
0: Yeah, I am super grateful that I had the conversation. I'm so proud of myself. One of the hardest parts is that people are like, cool, well, it's a work in progress. And I'm like, okay, I don't really want to keep working on this for the rest of my life when I feel like it's something that it really needs to come from mum. Like it has been the hardest thing. I'm a nurse that's worked in emergency and now I work at a school and I have kids that are doing terrible things, and we have to have awful conversations all the time, and this was far like this was both by, by far the most difficult conversation that I've had to have.
2: This combination of expressing your need for a mother while trying to confront your own mother about her alcoholism is a particularly gutsy balancing act. Our therapist, Esther Perel, says tough conversations with our parents are particularly
1: hard because we don't often see our folks as being flawed people. When you see them as the people that they are, you see them as the children that they were. And that means you see the parents that they had. I think that sometimes it's difficult to talk to parents because you're afraid that if you finally say it out, you actually are going to hear that which you expected to hear and it wasn't going to be good.
2: Like, I don't love like,
1: you, or like, I'm gonna confront certain behaviors that you were and you're gonna deny it. That's the classic one. That actually, the acknowledgement that I've been hoping for my entire life is never gonna come. The apology that I was hoping for my entire life is never gonna come. The interest from you in me and not just me as something that heightens you, <laughs> you know, that narcissistic feedback loop is never gonna come. Hmm. And I think that is so painful that, you know, some of us go back to the source, you know, hoping that we finally will find water. It's like Moses and the rock, you know, and it never will come. So that's a difficult conversation with our parents.
2: I think that the thing I've learned from this conversation is we can prepare what we've got to say and do it as lovingly as we can, but we also have to prepare for what we might get. And that's where our fear often lies is if we can't, we can't deal with it if it's not the answer we want.
1: <laughs> yes, that's a, the very short way of saying it. The conversation is defined by how I start because how I start has an influence on how you will respond. But there is a level of how you will respond that I cannot control. There's only as much as I can do. If I say it meanly, I've set myself up for the answer I get. But Mm. the thing is that sometimes I may still get the same answer, even though I've tried to say it with the greatest amount of respect and carefulness and diplomacy and blah, blah, blah.
2: One of the most difficult conversations I can think of is talking to your partner about not enjoying the sex you're having. On an earlier episode of Ladies We Need To Talk, we heard from Danielle. Her husband suffers from erectile dysfunction. Danielle's using a fake name and we've altered her voice.
3: It's embarrassing. How can I say to people, you know, my husband doesn't want to have sex with me. How do I say that over a Friday night wine?
2: Danielle spoke to us about the tough conversation she's been having with her husband. It's a sensitive topic for both of them. And whenever she tries to talk about it, he shuts her down.
3: I've tried everything. I've tried lingerie, porn, Viagra, DVDs, date nights, weekends away, going down on him, laying on the bed covered in oil, getting rid of the kids, you name it, I've tried it.
2: So many people were touched by Danielle's story. People message us to see if anything has changed. Everyone wants to help her. We've had countless emails about it. So we asked Esther how she'd handle the conversation.
1: That's a great question. I mean, I I spend many, many sessions with that. You know, the man, what does it mean he's impotent? It means that we look at male sexuality through the penis. If the penis doesn't perform... We define an entire man's sexuality as a result of that. Is that fair? Maybe this man may be not able to penetrate or to maintain his erections, or maybe he's rapid ejaculation, but at the same time he's a wonderful kisser. He's a wonderful giver. He can make her come through oral sex or through manual sex. Or I think that to take one feature of a person's sexual behavior and to define it, and to name it as the sum total of an entire person's sexual being is a catastrophe. And I say this to the man, and I say this to the woman. Because that same man, I want to say to him, leave your damn penis aside for a second. The penis doesn't make decisions, people make decisions. If the penis doesn't collaborate, that doesn't mean your tongue isn't working, your hands are not working, your hair is not working, and your skin, which is way bigger than your penis, it's a whole body. So I say the same thing to the woman. I say, if all he wanted was just penetration or just genitally driven sex, you would find that very reductionistic. Why are you doing the same thing that you would actually be against? If all he was looking at was the size of your orgasm, the level of your scream, you know, the level of your lubrication, you would think, what about the rest of me? You know, We are entire bodies, why do we only play one string? Sex is not about performing, it's about pleasure. So a lot of what I do I had a couple where the men had direct difficulties and the man, woman was really she did miss it she was very frustrated but he was so busy making sure that he would be able to perform that in fact he was completely busy with himself and not available to her at all so i made him basically put his hand in her hair and i just said you know when these lips open so do these this is interconnected. So he, he began to just stroke the hair and I just saw that she was actually enjoying it because what she was enjoying was the fact that he was attentive to her, that he was present. That woman that you describe, if all she does is try to do things so that he would finally function, that penis will not respond on the man. So I would say stop trying to make his penis obey. I mean, most women know the man can be in a complete erection. If she's not into it, the shop is closed. It's not what's happening to him that makes her enjoy it, it's what's happening to herself. And that's the big secret of women's sexuality.
2: Okay, I'm kind of getting Esther's vibe here. We're all a whole package, not compartmentalised bits. Let's move on to tough conversations with your mates. We often see our friends through a lens that is so different from the way they see themselves. I asked Esther
1: whether it's our duty as friends to communicate hard truths. I would say yes, but that's because it's a personal opinion. I understand that other people think differently. And, you know, I can sound very confident that doesn't mean I'm right. Friends more than anybody else, because they are so chosen and because it's often so reciprocal. You can't be friends with somebody that's not friends with you. except online maybe. But you kind of want to say, I adore you, but there's something I need to tell you. And you know that the only reason I'm telling it to you is because I care. Because if I didn't care, I wouldn't say a word. But because I adore you, I'm going to be a little bit tough. Do you think you can handle it? You need a buy-in before you open your mouth. Are you up for it? Do you want me to tell you? It's not going to feel good, but it will get better. And then you tell your message. And I think it is one of the fantastic experiences of friends, especially when you have long friends that have been with you. Listen, darling, at 15 you were this way and at 29 you're still this way and at 39, I'm sorry to tell you, it's time to move on from this thing. Sounds like you've done that before. I've done it before and I've been the recipient of it too. I have had very honest friends with me and sometimes I even, I would ask, you know. And I thank them. I think I'm a much better person. How do you pick up people
2: who are your friends that might be a fantastic person, but they say some racist things
1: every now and then or homophobic things? I've had the experience, in particularly with one very dear friend who I knew was quite anti-Semitic, actually. And what I did over the years is basically say, you know, there was a way in which they talked about in your family about Jews that... Uh, can see where you got some of these ideas and I just would say I just would like you to know one thing don't just love me and then say some of my best friends are or think I'm different I'm not I think actually I am there to say that what you think may not be so all-encompassing
2: and did she understand? yes 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 yes. that
1: took a while you know it didn't come early because I always wondered like I knew she loved me she just didn't love my people (laughs) It's a tough one. Does avoidance ever work? Hmm. That depends in which culture you are. We in the West live in a society where honesty is often a matter of confession, of this kind of naked truth. And we believe that saying more is better. But there are many cultures that are not at all seeing honesty as this matter of wholesale sharing. But in fact, honesty is not about what you say, but about thinking about what it will be like for the other person to live with that knowledge. So the word avoidance is in itself a culturally laden term. What you consider avoidance, other people consider respect.
2: This is so interesting because we're taught that avoidance is bad, that if we don't name the thing that's desperately on our minds, we'll explode into a puff of steam and rage. But in a lot of other cultures, like my mother's, for instance, we would politely step around the bothersome thing and never mention it nor look at it and go on peacefully coexisting. This Japanese approach, however, is very different to ghosting. Having tough conversations is hard. But ghosting, where you just disappear from someone's life without any explanation or contact,
1: is never better. I think that on the part of the recipient, it's gutting. Period. I think ghosting in its modern version is even as is, is a unique sting to it because, you know, two minutes ago you were sending me 500 texts, And I thought, you know, I exist inside of you and therefore I exist to the world and I'm like, I matter, etc. And suddenly like wiped out, erased, you know, I never existed at all and I can never find you again. It leaves people feeling empty, irrelevant, disposable, commodified. I mean, stuff that really doesn't do well by us. And there is a fundamental lack of accountability. I mean, they don't even have to call somebody or to say, you know what, it's not going to work or I'm done with us or I'm out. Now, there are some times when it is one of the last things a person needs to do with somebody where they can't go. My answers are always contextual, Mm. you know, but as a phenomenon where people really write to me. I wrote one column about ghosting and it's probably the column that got the most amount of comments in a blog, I mean, from for years now, it's the most read and commented on blog. So I actually have come up with a whole set of things where I say to people: when you ghost it like that, the next thing you do is you create a gathering of all the people that matter in your life, and that can be there for you. And you create a connection evening, and you basically you can even sing about heartbreak and do all kinds of read poetry about heartbreak, but make sure to not leave the hole open. Bring people that that care about you and that, you know, fill in the hole with the real connections that do exist. They will be the antidote to this open gasping wound that is just left there. Man, I've been ghosted and a ghosting
2: antidote party sounds totally amazing. But what if no one showed up? (laughs) I'm just standing here at the front door waiting for my mates to turn up. Hey, thanks so much for sharing this therapy session with me. I also really want to thank the people who got in touch for this episode. You've shown so much courage in talking and sharing and also setting an example of what a tough conversation can sound like. So thank you. We're not the only ones who have been thinking about how to have a tough conversation. If you're keen to tackle your own, head to ABC Life Online where you'll find guides and stories to help you have a tough conversation. Also, if you love Esther Perel, you should check out the chat she had on the ABC podcast, Conversations. You can find Ladies We Need to Talk on a podcast app or on the ABC Listen app. Ladies is mixed by Anne-Marie de Betancourt. It's produced by Cassandra Steath. Supervising producer is Madeline Jenner and our executive producer is Justine Kelly. This series was created by Claudine Ryan. The manager of
1: Audio Studios is Kelly Reardon.